As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, you know how sometimes, uh, I don't know if it's a joke, but at the end of an episode, we'll be like, well, we're going to have to check back a year from now to see how that developed. (laughs) It's not meant to be a joke. Uh, It's meant to be. It's not a joke, but we don't, I don't know if we always do it or if we really always, you know, follow up on those, but it is something we say. All right. But we're, we're making good. We're making good on one of those comments now, though, right? We are we are doing a, an episode that I think can legitimately be said to be a follow up. You know, I think it was obviously like basically a year ago around this time that we first sort of became aware of uh, the coronavirus. We didn't know how big of a deal it was going to be. We didn't know how, you know, we knew it was sort of bubbling up. We knew that there were uh, cases in uh, Wuhan. We didn't know much, though, about the overall uh, impact. And um you know, one of the first people that we discussed it with was uh, was uh, was with our guest today. Right. So this particular guest has been on a few times now, and we always get requests for him to uh, to come back. Last year, when we spoke to him, it was February, as you mentioned. The coronavirus crisis was uh, just really getting underway, but we'd already seen a bunch of supply chain disruptions, and there was a lot of talk at the time about what that might mean for tech specifically. So in tech, you have these really complicated supply chains with lots of little components, uh, particularly semiconductors. So we did, uh, well, we had a big conversation about that at the time. And now we can check in and see what's actually happened. Yeah, I mean, I think it's useful. I think your framing there is really good because at the time, we didn't know yet that it was going to be this global health crisis. Right. We were really at the time we were focused on, well, what does this mean for Chinese manufacturing? Because we knew that a lot of factories were uh, shut down, including the suppliers. One of the first companies in the U.S. to really warn that they were seeing an impact from the virus was Apple, which talked about disruption to its suppliers and the attendant disruption that would happen with its uh, product rollout. So even, you know, in the very early days, that still seemed like the angle. Um, tech and manufacturing. And then, of course, it was just a few weeks later that we realized we were looking at a full-blown global health crisis. Right. And now, of course, um, I mean, this is a a little bit outside of tech, but now a year later, China's economy is actually doing a lot better on a number of measures versus places like the U.S. or perhaps Europe. Uh, It continues to develop its tech industry, of course, and we know the government has really doubled down on its attempts to create or uh, improve its domestic tech capabilities. And if anything, I I guess the tensions with the U.S. over trade, plus the supply chain disruptions from COVID, has really encouraged uh, the leadership in China to look at this and to accelerate this uh, idea of tech independence. Yeah. So an extraordinary year just sort of on all fronts. Mm. Uh, As you mentioned, our guest is a recurring Odd Lots guest, always one of the most uh, requested. So I'm very excited to have him back. We're going to be speaking with Dan Wong. He is a technology analyst at Gavcal Dragonomics. 
He knows a lot about a lot of stuff, particularly related to tech and manufacturing, and can speak about it in a way that very few people can. So, um, Dan, thank you very much for coming back on uh, coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Joe and Tracy. I mean, there's so much to discuss over the uh, over the last year, and so many different things. And of course, you know, we've been talking a lot about chips on the show, and we've been, you know, everything, but. So starting big picture, I mean, we, we had we last talked to you about a year ago. You know, what is What did you learn? What have you learned about China and its manufacturing and business capabilities watching it deal with the crisis over the last year? First, I learned that China is a lot more brutal than I thought and already from a pretty high level of, uh, you know, uh, efficiency as well as ruthlessness. And second, I thought that China is now the most uh, can-do society in the world just by how quickly it mobilized uh, to really try to contain this pandemic and to really try to restart production. And let me talk through uh, both aspects of that. Now, I lived in uh, Beijing through the very worst of the pandemic. Uh, I was um, in Beijing uh, starting from early February, and it was a pretty much a ghost town uh, at that time. A lot of restaurants have been closed. A lot of uh, workers, uh, a lot of people who left Beijing back uh, home uh, had not been able to make it back to Beijing for about a few weeks uh, to an entire month. And uh, the city was uh, mostly locked down. I had a person posted uh, outside my apartment checking for apartment passes to make sure that people can come in and out. There was basically universal mask wearing, and there still almost is universal mask wearing about uh, you know, uh, 12 months after uh, the start of the pandemic. Uh, I had to bring a health code app, which is embedded into my smartphone everywhere that I went. And it's it was very difficult to travel within China and for a lot of foreigners uh, or uh, you know people outside of China, it was very, very difficult for them to come back. And this is to say nothing of the centralized quarantine system that China implemented to separate uh, sick people away from families so that they don't transmit uh, through an entire household, which uh, basically was a very ruthless affair. Now, if you take a look and uh, you know at the Chinese COVID numbers, there's always a lot of questions about uh, Chinese data. Uh, officially, the country has reported something like 80,000 cases, and even if you want to expand that by an order of magnitude, which you know maybe is something that I can uh, accept, um, the trend of the data has shown that uh, COVID was pretty much conclusively stomped out uh, in the country uh, by April, which lines up very well with our experiences. That's when the lockdowns peaked and life slowly started to get back to normal, even though there have been a few flare-ups here and there. And by September, I remember this very vividly when I spent a month in Shanghai, which had been much more relaxed uh, than uh, Beijing. I was sitting shoulder to shoulder with folks uh, in the cinema. All the smart restaurants had been very difficult to book again. The strangest thing was that uh, people were reaching out to shake my hand. And I found that uh, kind of a very bizarre and uh, gross experience. It was uh, very strange for me to think that, you know, a culture that did not invent handshaking is now sort of the only place uh, really perpetuating this tradition. Um, But, you know, this is, um, that's a sign that life uh, had been basically normal uh, through a period of, um, you know, pretty uh, intense pain for a couple of months. Now, uh, the second part of, um, you know, uh, the uh, life in China is that, you know, I saw how quickly uh, China uh, responded to really try to contain um, this um, uh, a pandemic. In particular, I'll just highlight that manufacturers are really sprang into action to uh, try to uh, contain this pandemic. I know that Bloomberg put out an article today uh, saying that showing that China exported something like 240 billion masks last year, which is something like 40 masks uh, per person in the world because its production facilities were just uh, able to get up and running uh, really quickly. Now, one of the things I uh, heard from a, a manufacturer in China is that, you know, when they take a look at their counterparts in the U.S., um, so many of them had to ask if making masks is part of their core competence, whereas the Chinese company simply decided that making money is their core competence and therefore they should go make masks. And therefore, every part of the supply chain really uh, sprang up. Uh, a lot of the consumer internet apps uh, changed uh, their user interfaces to accommodate uh, COVID tracking, for example, to make it uh, very easy to find a fever clinic or a hospital nearby. And uh, you know, China mobilized uh, really, really quickly uh, and very intensely to deal with this uh, big threat in a way that hasn't necessarily replicated in a lot of parts of the West. I have what might be a strange question based on that, but how much of this can you attribute to 
the can-do spirit of Chinese society, as you put it, versus the benefits of having a command economy with a centralized authority that can instruct people to do things like, you know, post attendance outside of buildings and make sure that people aren't breaking lockdown and they can tell factories to start manufacturing masks and things like that. I, I guess I'm asking how much of it is spontaneous adaptation versus uh, centralized directives? I think it is both. I think it is um neither entirely one uh, and obviously uh, not uh, entirely uh, the other. I think that uh, it is both the case that a lot of uh, Chinese folks, first of all, were very careful in complying with government orders. And then second of all, in figuring out uh, what they can do as part of this pandemic. If it were entirely a command economy, you know, the Soviet style, this goes there. I don't think it could have been quite as effective as a lot of uh, Chinese manufacturers just being very nimble, retooling their products and then figuring out how to get production back online again. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that what you said, uh, companies identifying their core competence as making money is sort of an interesting way to frame it. Can you expand on that a little bit more and what that process was like? I mean, there obviously, you know, must have been many factories, many companies that had never made PPE equipment prior to the spring or prior to uh, last winter who suddenly got very good at it. And how how did uh, how did how did they do it? Well, uh, you know, I hasten to add a caveat here that uh, many of them were not necessarily very good at it. And a lot of Chinese masks uh, turned out to be defective early on. Now, uh, a lot of these were either called by regulatory action or they just learned uh, and figured out very quickly how to make better masks and were able to export uh, quite so many uh, around the world. And I think the um, issue here is that, you know, one of the issues with uh, manufacturing in the U.S. early on in the pandemic had been that the uh, U.S. government uh, did not send out these very clear profit signals that we need uh, PPE, that we need, we will pay for all of this stuff. And the uh, Chinese government, uh, first of all, established a lot of these clear uh, pricing incentives in these regulated healthcare areas, as well as pretty much making mask wearing mandatory, as well as, you know, sort of frightening people enough into believing that this is uh, indeed a very serious uh, virus that uh, everybody needs to take seriously. And so once you had all of these things in place and you also had, you know, a lot of um, uh, sympathy uh, for the victims of Wuhan early on, people felt that, well, maybe we need to help out. And uh, a lot of companies reacted in a good way to try to contain this pandemic. So does that adaptation or that ability to evolve your business model very quickly to adapt to new situations. Does that extend to more complicated manufacturing, things like technology? So we've had you on a bunch of times before, as Joe and I have both mentioned, and we've talked about some of the headwinds facing China when it comes to developing its own tech base, specifically in semiconductors. In 2020, we saw new challenges to China's ambitions emerged. So we had COVID-19 messing with the supply chains. And we also had the U.S. basically doubling down on its uh, trade war with China and issuing a whole bunch of uh, new orders that are interfering with Chinese tech in some way. How easy is it for China to adapt to that new situation? Very good question, Tracy, and I'm not sure if it is um, uh, that easy at all. I'm not sure that these, um, you know, the ability to mobilize um, a lot uh, during a pandemic necessarily translates into, uh, you know, making China a scientific uh, superpower. Um, in this case, you know, I think uh, the one clear area where the U.S. really distinguished itself was through its scientific establishment of getting together these mRNA vaccines that have a really superb efficacy uh, out uh, in a very uh, quick speed. Now, the rest of uh, the U.S. supply chain hasn't uh, necessarily uh, reacted very well. Distribution now doesn't look like a great success yet. Um, but this is where uh, the U.S. Uh, did very well. Whereas in China, you know, I think the uh, scientific establishment, you know, outside of um, pandemic and uh, the pandemic in general has never really been uh, very well established. Um, China has not, uh, after years of trying very hard, uh, become uh, a leader in something like semiconductors. Uh, it has not become a leader in a 
radiation. Um, and there are a whole bunch of, you know, scientific knowledge that I'm not sure that a lot of, um, you know, uh, folks here uh, really possess uh, in a very big way. Um, but I think it is uh, worth bringing up, as you did, Tracy, that uh, the U.S. doubled down on this trade war uh, over 2020, which, uh, you know, was accelerated in some part by uh, a negative perception of uh, China and the U.S., and having spoken about uh, a list of you know, China's failures in the past, I think uh, one of the points that I've been uh, making much more frequently now is that uh, this time is different for Chinese industrial policy. And this time is different for Chinese industrial policy because of uh, U.S. Uh, actions. Now, if you consider the broader history of Chinese industrial policy over the last few years, to say nothing of the last few decades, when China put out its first five-year plan in 1959, I would say that the broad mass of Chinese industrial policy has mostly been a failure. Now, um, there are, you can point to some successes in something like solar panels and something like high-speed rail in certain segments of heavy industries. Um, for the most part, for bigger ticket items, uh, Chinese firms have not been highly distinguished in segments like uh, semiconductors uh, or in aviation. Um, and I think the fundamental problem with Chinese industrial policy in the past has been that the Chinese government was forcing basically government ministries and state-owned firms to buy obviously inferior Chinese technologies and then hope that basically the scale of the buying as well as interprovincial competition can drive a lot of innovation and a lot of uh, you know high quality and products. Now, sometimes that works in the case of high-speed rail. And also there is a lot of different things that don't work. And what's happened after uh, you know the four years of the uh, Trump administration, you know, a lot, the Trump administration has really targeted a lot of China's technology leaders, uh, leading firms, uh, most of them private, for uh, some form of sanctions. Um, for example, it has uh, really put the screws on uh, Huawei, uh, which I think is uh, China's most important technology company, and you may have a debate about whether it's private or not. Um, the Trump administration has uh, imposed a form of sanction on uh, Tencent, uh, as well as on ByteDance, which owns respectively WeChat, as well as TikTok. It's um, designated uh, China's leading semiconductor maker, SMIC, to the entity list. Really, the only Chinese major technology company that hasn't faced some form of sanctions has been Alibaba. But in this case, actually, it is uh, Beijing that's stepped up to the plate to put the screws on uh, Alibaba. I think the uh, issue here is that uh, the uh, U.S. government has entirely aligned the incentives of uh, Chinese firms uh, with that of the state, which has always tried to pursue self-sufficiency as technological greatness. In the past, these Chinese companies have not always tried to sign on to a lot of these uh, their agendas. If you take a look, um, Alibaba and uh, Tencent and Huawei have always been using very substantial amounts of U.S. technologies because they've always been the best in class. But now they have a great incentive to try to you know, uh, build up the technological ecosystem in China. And to editorialize a little bit here, you know, I think the U.S. reacted to the technological rise of the USSR in Japan, mostly by trying to invest more in itself and building up more of its own industries. And it's reacting to the technological rise of China, mostly by trying to kneecap uh, China's leading firms. So instead of realizing its own Sputnik moment, it's uh, really triggering one in China. Hmm. And just to extend the space analogy just a little bit further, I think the U.S. government has put Huawei into the position that NASA was in the 1960s when it was the main buyer for semiconductors, uh, and it was buying chips only on the basis of performance, uh, not cost. And so Huawei now is a very cash-rich, very competent firm that is trying to get its hands on Chinese semiconductors uh, just so long as they work without spending too much time thinking about you know whether this is a long-term company or not, uh, simply because it really wants to build up a more of a reliable ecosystem. That's fascinating. Is there some reason why that one can point to to talk about the success China has had in solar and high-speed rail that hasn't translated into semiconductors and aviation in terms of what it was about industrial policy or demand-side policies that made those areas different? Well, Joe, a lot of the academics who've um, studied this exact question have um, sort of come to the conclusion that it's really hard to find patterns here. When you take a look at Chinese policies in uh, things that include, uh, you know, the electrical grid and things that include, uh, you know, solar panels and high-speed rail, which are relative successes, and in semiconductors and aviations uh, where they've been uh, failures, it's been a lot of the same policies, including a lot of the same people. So it's really difficult to figure out, you know, exactly what's going on here. You can 
can you know spin out a wonderful story in every particular case. Uh, maybe there is just some complexity criterion, which I completely believe in taking a look at how complex the semiconductor uh, supply chain is, um, but it's very difficult to find easy answers here. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Dan, I want to go back to something you said. You you highlighted this irony. It's pretty big irony that almost all the major tech companies in China have had some sort of U.S. restriction imposed on them in recent years, except for Alibaba. But of course, now Beijing has basically... Um, done that, done the U.S.'s job for it and and imposed a bunch of limitations on the business. Uh, there's some reports of Jack Ma having gone missing. People aren't really sure what's going on with him. Is that another headwind for Chinese tech? Or would you imagine that that would have a sort of cooling effect on entrepreneurs? Well, certainly the um, equity market um, has believed so. I believe Alibaba has at this point lost around uh, 25% of its value uh, throughout the year as it's uh, been continuously beaten up uh, by uh, the Chinese government, um, whereas uh, Tencent has lost uh, around 10% of its value. Uh, now, whether this uh, has a substantial cooling effect on entrepreneurs, well, you know, a lot of the uh, Beijing line is that we need to create effective antitrust. Uh, this antitrust debate is happening very substantially also in uh, you know, Europe as well as in the U.S. We need to regulate a marketplace that you know, makes life easier for a lot of smaller businesses. Uh, there's a lot of you know, these uh, financial uh, issues that we're concerned about, these financial risks uh, with uh, and financial the difficulty for us is to, you know, sort of disentangle that with uh, an obviously impolitic uh, speech that Jack Ma gave, and so you know, there's uh, probably both a component of effective regulatory response to, you know, uh, more complex and uh, more domineering private firms, as well as this personal issue. Uh, so it's it's pretty difficult to disentangle these things. Now, to answer your question a little bit more directly, what I would generally say is that Chinese state has generally been pretty well aware that its private sector has been much more dynamic than this, uh, you know, stodgy, moribund state sector. And it has not shown a huge amount of interest uh, yet in really trying to stifle out, uh, basically, a lot of entrepreneurial activity. Now, the C regime has been continuously more repressive, and it has signaled that there are certain things that it will control uh, very strictly. But for the most part, I would not say that uh, we're in this part of the world where China is completely ready now to force the entrepreneurs to uh, be state actors. I think we're not quite there yet. I want to get in, you know, we've obviously been talking a lot about uh, semis on the show, and I want to sort of get to that specifically soon and the state of uh, the state of the art of uh, Chinese semiconductor manufacturing. But before we do, I mean, you know, I think one of our recent guests talked about chips as sort of this, you know, obviously incredibly complicated, extremely expensive marriage of chemistry and physics. And so before we talk about that, I want to get into the point you made about you know, there's still like the limits of Chinese, um, the scientific community or the scientific, the leading edge of uh, science in China. And you mentioned the U.S. edge, the clear edge that the U.S. has had even throughout all this in uh, making vaccines, which, of course, is uh, you know indi indicative of uh, the strong U.S. science position. What are what, what do what are your observations? What do you perceive as academic observations about? what it takes and what uh, what it will need for that to really grow and uh, become cutting edge in China. 
Well, uh, the first thing I would like to do is to, I'm always trying to beat up on the consumer internet sector because I'm not sure how much of that is uh, real technology. So many of hmm. the consumer internet names right. that we're all familiar with, including in China, especially Alibaba and Tencent, seem more to me to be companies that are really exploiting network effects that are innovating on uh, business models that are not necessarily creating a great deal of IP. Now, if you take a look at the broader scientific establishment in China, uh, basically, you know, according to the government's own data, around about 5 to 10% of all of its R&D spending is going towards fundamental scientific research, which is around, as a share, uh, about, I think, um, less than a half or about a third of U.S. levels. So it's a completely different um, scale a ballpark here. I'm not sure how much... Uh, Chinese firms are really doing substantial amounts of uh, very uh, cutting-edge technology. According to some of the academic studies I, I've seen, uh, basically the only area where China uh, Chinese scientists are publishing uh, the majority of the top 1% of scientifically cited papers is in material sciences, where China has uh, always taken a keen interest because it uh, feeds into things like uh, semiconductors uh, as well as aviation. Um, but what Chinese uh, researchers do have, uh, what um, you know, universities would tell me, is that they have a substantial amount of money being thrown at them, uh, basically to do work. Whereas when I talk to American researchers, what they would tell me is that well, look, we're spending all of our time filling grants. Uh, we are spending all of our time preparing very detailed proposals to the National Science Foundation, which is pretty conservative and only funds uh, very well established our researchers. Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, structurally, I think uh, one of the advantages that China uh, would have, if you had to push me to say, is that, well, it sort of showers money a little bit randomly. Um, but, you know, top scientists don't really have to keep w wondering about whether this um, a, a, a committee of bureaucrats is going to approve their scientific project. So just on that note, one of the themes that keeps coming out of our discussions on the semiconductor industry specifically is just the amount of money it takes to build uh, those factories. Um, I mean, it takes a lot of expertise as well. So you can't just throw money at the problem, obviously. But when the cost of building a new foundry is something like $10 billion, clearly you need some sort of capital at hand. And in certain places, the government has really encouraged that domestic industry to build up by investing, subsidizing it in some way. How has China approached the uh, the semiconductor industry and, and what are the sort of avenues it can pursue in order to boost domestic capacity? Mostly in the only way that the Chinese government knows how, which is by shoveling a lot of subsidy funds um, towards uh, state-owned companies. Uh, that's usually been the story that uh, China wants um, in order to have success. And, uh, you know, you're right that semiconductors now are incredibly uh, capital intensive. Uh, I saw, you know, in today in the day of recording, uh, TSMC has just released its latest quarterly results. It's committing something like $27 billion uh, within this year to basically do more CapEx, which I think is just an astonishing figure, you know, for a single company to commit over the course of uh, one year. And so, you know, the Chinese uh, industry has never really been able to match that. Uh, and the, I think the Chinese government funds have never really been able to push uh, these companies to be very competitive. They are still very reliant on subsidies in order to have more production. So we're talk about the we talk about the Chinese semiconductor industry not being top flight yet. What is the state of it? What does it look like? How many important companies are there to watch? How advanced are they? How many years behind? Like, give us sort of just your assessment of where things stand right now relative to the rest of the world. Well, if you really had to push me to give a single metric, um, you know, this would broadly be unfair to the industry. But I would say, you know, uh, broadly speaking, I would say that China, Chinese firms are at the very least five years behind um, the cutting edge, if not something like uh, closer to 15, if, um, you know, if you take a look at uh, certain segments. Now, my assessment in general of the Chinese semiconductor industry is that China's figured out sort of the basics of competing in pretty much every segment of the uh, semiconductor uh, value chain, but it is leading in uh, none of them. Where it is close to being the market leader is something uh, like assembling and packaging, which is pretty low value. It's uh, relatively uh, labor intensive. Um, there are some successes like Huawei, which designs its own uh, uh, phone processors, just as Apple does. It is 
uh, putting out some really cutting edge uh, processors. There are a lot of uh, Chinese design firms now that are designing pretty capable chips um, as best as I can tell. But if you take a look at the actual manufacturing of chips, um, China's leading semiconductor maker has always persistently been about five years behind TSMC. And this is before it was sanctioned um, uh, earlier last month uh, onto uh, the Commerce Department's uh, entity list. And if you take a look basically at all of the inputs that China needs to make semiconductors, you know, some of the chemicals it can do, maybe some of the wafers it can do, but where it is uh, very substantially behind is in something called EDA tools, which is the software that you need to actually design a semiconductor, as well as the actual manufacturing equipment. So the lithography machines, basically a lot of the testing machines, China is uh, pretty much nowhere in a lot of these different segments. So China has managed to be um, uh, very far behind uh, Western as well as Japanese, Taiwanese, um, Korean firms, even when it had access to leading tools. Now, when uh, the U.S. government has been much more active with sanctions, it's going to be much more difficult for them to uh, stay, uh, you know, even competitive uh, at this point because they have to wait for the rest of the ecosystem to catch up to basic competence, which is not quite there yet. So, a lot of your writing um, in 2020 sort of focused on the dynamic between performance and cost when it comes to technology and how companies and governments might treat that. Can you can you dive into that thesis for us? Because I think it explains a lot of what's going in, on in uh, semiconductors at the moment. So if you take a look at a lot of the early products of the uh, technology industry, you know, a lot of early things uh, simply don't work. So, you know, uh, the first ever iPhone, uh, people would say at this point, was barely functional as a phone. Um, if you take a look at the earlier semiconductors, you know the early integrated circuits, they had uh, basically uh, higher failure rates uh, than uh, older technology uh, transistor-based. Uh, um, but what actually matters is that you need to continue investing in these new technologies. If you have uh, a bigger market to address, then you have more money to plow into R&D. And a lot of this just takes a very serious uh, long-term effort to uh, build out uh, basically a lot of these capabilities. Now, what the U.S. government has done is that it has turned a lot of its firms into uh, unreliable suppliers. Out of, uh, I think, highly legitimate security concerns, the U.S. government has said uh, we don't want Huawei uh, equipment in our networks, um, but also it's gone quite a lot further by denying a lot of the critical components, which are mostly made by American companies, to take down Huawei, uh, the U.S. government has uh, really significantly escalated this uh, attack on what I think is uh, China's uh, most important technology company. And so Huawei is now in this position of uh, trying to find uh, you know, alternative suppliers, whether they are in Japan or Korea or Taiwan or Europe. Best of all, they are, ought to be Chinese. And so a lot of these smaller suppliers that couldn't have the time of day uh, from Huawei are now becoming suppliers to uh, this big company. And and I think this is going to play out in a way that, you know, you have a lot of just this very patient funding to bring up a lot of technology companies up to speed onto, uh, you know, the technology leaders. And this is going to play out uh, in uh, for a lot of these different technologies because China is taking this self-sufficiency goal much more seriously now. You know, something that interests me, and it goes back to one of your first answers, and it's sort of I'm still scratching my head on this a lot is. You know, when you were talking about, say, um, the mask manufacturing in China, one of the reasons that it was successful is the Chinese government established very early on the profit potential that they were a buyer, that there would be buyers of masks. You could uh, say one of the reasons that the vaccine um, rollout in the U.S. or the vaccine development happened so fast is Operation, operation Warp Speed, de-risking the process, uh, the government de-risking the process by promising to buy vaccines. And then going back to chips, as you point out, like one of the historical strategies has been the government's going to buy a lot. And then, of course, if you look at the U.S. historical semiconductor industry, you know, came out of uh, DOD buying. So obviously the demand side is a really important part of the equation, whether we're talking about masks, whether we're talking about vaccines, whether we're talking about chips. But it doesn't sound like that's enough. So what what more needs to be done beyond just the sort of getting the demand side right to really catalyze uh, the expansion and innovation and develop that know-how? Well, if you're China, you don't really... Uh have to be bound by the demand side. Uh, you you have the luxury of uh, not having to choose 
um, because uh, China doesn't simply manage the demand side. It also encourages a lot of uh, producer side subsidies. China is very much a supply side economy. So the really striking thing uh, to me economically uh, in 2020 was that a lot of Western countries uh, directed a stimulus to uh, basically households in the form of you know checks uh, from the government sort of to stimulate uh, consumption. And if you take a look at China's government spending this year, its uh, fiscal stimulus to households has been absolutely minimal. Um, its interest rate mm. cuts uh, has been uh, also uh, minimal. And it focused a lot on just getting production back online and then trying to you know, focus on helping manufacturers get back to their feet. Over the uh, first half of the year, I had uh, basically a lot of conversations about how local governments as well as the central government were very intimately involved in basically trying to scale up and to rebuild a lot of these supply chains. And I think that effort has uh, continuously paid off uh, if you take a look at the continued strength of China's uh, exports. Now, China is, uh, you know, again, doesn't have to choose. It is now really intent on doing technology. What it has is a lot of scale in a way that, for example, uh, Denmark does not. You know, China has uh, a very large market to play in. Um, they are uh, able to build very substantial companies, not necessarily leading companies, um, out of uh, a population of 1.3 billion people. And what's been quite striking to me that, uh, uh, last year was that seeing how the central party leadership, especially President Xi Jinping, continues emphasize that China needs to do a lot more technology. So uh, he has uh, continuously said that we need a secure and controllable supply chain. We need to innovate our way out of choke point technologies. Um, the most astonishing uh, government directive I, I thought of last year was that at the end of the year, uh, folks gather in Beijing for the Central Economic Work Conference, which lists out the economic priorities for the next year. And in 2020, basically in December, the highest economic officials said our top priority in 2021 will be science and technology. As far as I can tell, science and technology has never been broken out as one of the eight independent items uh, that China will really need to figure out. And to say, you know, and this topped the item uh, for uh, the last uh, major work directive. So this is um, a pretty big whole of society effort to figure out a lot more technology. So on that note, how do you see this developing in 2021? Are we going to see a continuation of China's dedication to building out its tech expertise? Or perhaps, you know, we have Joe Biden coming in as the president, a new administration. Perhaps that takes some of the pressure off. Or is this a dynamic that you think is going to be going on for a, a long time? I think it's going going to go on uh, for a, a very long time, uh, and I think the Chinese government has uh, realized that it really needs to figure out a lot of the um, you know indigenous innovation projects that uh, it has embarked on, so that it can't be very easily choked off by capricious uh, foreign governments on critical technologies. At the same time, I don't necessarily think that China will make any immediate breakthroughs um, in uh, anything like the short term, in anything like the next uh, two to three years. Although there there could be you know company level uh, breakthroughs on uh, smaller technologies, because the general trend that I see in China is that, you know, things get better, uh, but at a very slow rate. So if you take a look at, you know, uh, the, the iPhone, the very first iPhone, um, you know, very famously is uh, assembled in China and designed in California. The first iPhone incorporated something like 2% of Chinese value add uh, in uh, its hardware. And that was basically the value of the labor in China that gathered to uh, really put together this uh, phone components that were that came from places like uh, the U.S. and Japan and Germany uh, and other places. And now an academic that determined the original 2% figure um, also uh, you know, did a, a, an update of the study in 2018. He took apart an uh, iPhone 10 and then found that the iPhone 10's uh, share of Chinese value added had increased to something like 25%. So you had a growth of 2% to 25% over 10 years of a much higher value phone. And so, you know, that's sort of um, the paradigmatic story to me of a lot of Chinese progress, you know, innovating on what is uh, one of the hardest uh, electronics products in the world, but at a pretty slow and steady pace, um, not necessarily in big breakthroughs. I sort of see this um, Chinese patience sort of, you know, not overrunning the uh, U.S. semiconductor industry any soon, but steadily making uh, better progress. Why can't China just hire the number two person at Taiwan Semiconductor, who that is, <laughs> whoever that is? Like, why is it not that easy? 
Well, they certainly have spent quite a lot of uh, effort trying to recruit a lot of engineers from especially uh, Taiwan as well as Korea. I remember uh, staying at a hotel uh, close to a Chinese um, uh, memory chip plant. Uh, Koreans are really dominant in memory. And then the hotel staff told me, well, you know, most of our residents are Korean engineers. They all have their own uh, private uh, drivers and they get to fly home to Seoul uh, on the weekends. I'm uh, currently uh, sitting in Shanghai, uh, which is uh, the site of uh, China's um, most advanced uh, semiconductor maker, uh, SMIC. I'm told that SMIC uh, built a church uh, for one of its first executives, which came from uh, TSMC, in fact. And it's built uh, a street called uh, Little Taipei, where you can get really good beef noodles as well as uh, bubble tea. So they constantly make efforts to I hire particular people. The issue is that you need to hire not just uh, one person, but you need to hire entire teams and entire you know, divisions of staff. And you also need the cooperation of all of your suppliers in order to continue innovating here. And that's not really something that Chinese firms have uh, really well established. So I have a related question, but we've been talking a lot about what China is doing domestically to build up its tech expertise we haven't been talking a lot about what it's doing externally. Is there any, do you think there's any desire or appetite on the part of China to try to, I guess, um, complicate other countries' tech ambitions, basically retaliate against the U.S. in the way that the U.S. has imposed restrictions on Chinese tech? Tracy, one of these um, the things that we've been thinking about very actively is uh, when China, when Beijing would be ready to retaliate against uh, U.S. firms. And I've been consistently taking the view that China will not broadly retaliate uh, against um, U.S. firms. And so far, I think uh, my, my, my view has uh, generally held up pretty well. Now, every time the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce does something really mean against Huawei, I have a bunch of folks asking me, well, you know, who is Beijing going to punish next? It doesn't uh, really calm minds in the U.S. when Global Times, one of the nationalist uh, state-owned papers, um, every time lists uh, a list of ABCQ of retaliation, it's going to be Apple. Boeing, uh, Cisco, and Qualcomm that are targets for retaliation. And in fact, we haven't really seen uh, any you know, highly visible uh, instances of retaliation against U.S. firms. And I think that comes down to a, a couple of different uh, reasons. And broadly speaking, first of all, uh, that uh, China really needs American technology, which is highly evident uh, in always current struggles because it hasn't been able to get its hands on American semiconductors. So U.S. technology firms are very important in China, and you can't uh, lose them. You also have uh, basically U.S. employers, U.S. companies being major employers in the Chinese market. Apple employs, um, you know, over a million people uh, directly through manufacturing and retail uh, in China, uh, through uh, also through contract manufacturers like Foxconn. You have uh, American companies like General Motors uh, hiring basically tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people. Even Starbucks and McDonald's were pretty important for urban youth employment, which had been looking even a bit shaky before the pandemic. Now, folks in Beijing used to uh, tell me that, well, a lot of the people who work at Starbucks can just go work for Luck and Coffee instead. But now that we all know that Luck and Coffee is a big fraud, you know, I think folks are not saying uh, that so much anymore. And you know, I think the other reason that Beijing has mostly been restrained is that it has uh, perceived that uh, it, um, you know, the best way to retaliate against uh, American firms is not to play into the hands of hardliners at the White House or National Security Council, who would like nothing better for American companies to pull up their stakes and then move production, if not back to the U.S., than to Vietnam or India or Mexico. It is better to, um, you know, hug them even closer, which is uh, uh, the attitude that has been pretty apparent under uh, President Xi to really try to engage much more with uh, American businesses who are, after all, effectively lobbying uh, Washington, D.C. in order to preserve access to China, which for so many companies is their uh, fastest growing market or expect to be one of their largest markets uh, in the next couple of years. And broadly, I don't get the sense in Beijing that they are ready to you know, retaliate uh, against any big American company like Apple. Otherwise, you know, a lot of the entire um, uh, business community might leave. And that's not the outcome that uh, Beijing is ready for yet.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The fact that, you know, talk about replicating Taiwan Semi in China, that China can't even replicate Starbucks, that the, the homegrown Starbucks alternative turned out to uh, go poof sort of uh, sort of tells you something. We, you know, so we, we haven't really talked about Taiwan Semi that much on this episode, but of course, we've been talking about it a lot on recent episodes. But talk to us about your view of the sort of Chinese government view of the company and how that plays into the broader tension over Taiwan itself. Right. Uh, well, Joe, one of the um, frequent questions I get with, um, you know, uh, Beijing's attitude to TSMC is whether, you know, there might be some sort of um, a hot conflict or a military conflict uh, with uh, TSMC if um, Beijing tries to uh, initiate something. Now, I think there might be other reasons to expect that uh, Beijing will have military action, but I'm always very skeptical that uh, Beijing will take military action over Taiwan for this particular uh, reason. And I think the, the thinking here is that, um, you know, first of all, technology exists in people's heads. It's not just about the machinery. And if you have basically anything like a, uh, a nasty conflict uh, over Taiwan, I think you can't guarantee that a lot of critical engineers won't be evacuated ahead of time or will always be perfectly safe uh, during, you know, some sort of uh, hot conflict. Uh, second of all, you know, if you have some sort of, um, you know, bigger action, some sort of hot conflict, can you really guarantee that these uh, big factories that cost, you know, tens of billions of dollars now really can be, you know, safe from some sort of uh, damage? And I think the most important factor here is that if uh, Beijing ever escalates into, you know, any sort of uh, very violent action uh, against Taiwan, it will be uh, sanctioned by every Western government that provides it the technology that uh, both uh, the Chinese industry as well as uh, TSMC and the Taiwanese industry would need to continue growing. So much of the equipment to make semiconductors uh, comes from the United States, as well as from the Netherlands, as well as from uh, Japan. And I think that China would not be able to get its hands on pretty much so many crucial components uh, past that point because uh, the uh, foreign uh, governments will just impose a pretty comprehensive uh, embargo or you know, highly targeted embargo on semiconductors if uh, the situation ever got to that point. So I would, uh, I'm always very skeptical that this would be a particular reason to act. How long can TSMC maintain its lead in semiconductor manufacturing? I think that TSMC will have a very substantial lead uh, for a pretty long time. But, you know, I think the comfort for uh, Chinese firms is that, you know, technology might be moving to a point where you don't necessarily always need the cutting edge to, uh, you know, be a very, to be a very successful firm. Now, if you take a look at what has driven a lot of the technological advancements uh, from, you know, uh, 14 nanometers uh, to 7 nanometers to 5 nanometers to 3 nanometers uh, in semiconductor um, process nodes has been the uh, sale of smartphones. And smartphones for the last three years has been a declining market, which shows that, you know, there isn't necessarily a huge amount of demand at the very top levels of technology beyond basically, you know, certain iPhone, um, Apple and uh, Qualcomm processors. You know, if you believe in all of the hype around 5G, and I'm not sure that I do, 
you know, if we have, uh, you know, uh, semiconductors in every traffic light, uh, if you have semiconductors in, um, you know, um, every bookshelf, if I'm having semiconductors in my coffee, basically, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, leading edge semiconductors in a traffic light. A lot of it will be, you know, pretty simple stuff of the type that China can mostly manufacture today. And even if you take a look at the most advanced AI chips, they're not necessarily on the cutting edge of five or three nanometers. A lot of them are trailing edge chips. If you take a look at the uh, cloud uh, server chips, um, these are not necessarily, again, uh, five or three. And so I think the, uh, you know, the, the, the case that uh, China can be a little bit happier about is that technology is moving to a point where you know, the whole thing is maturing, um, but you may not necessarily need cutting edge and everything uh, for, uh, for, from now on. Yeah, this was something our, our last guest talking about this also mentioned. And so essentially, in your view, I mean, we could talk a lot about, you know, you mentioned earlier, TSMC spending $28 billion in CapEx in one year. But the risk then is that technological dominance, manufacturing dominance is not the business. It does not necessarily translate into the current into business dominance. A lot of things are leading edge once and then commoditized, which is, um, you know, where China can catch up. And it's possible that this will also happen to semiconductors. I want to I want to take a different turn. I mean, so much of this conversation and something we've talked about, and I'm really curious to get your take. I mean, some of this conversation is about and past ch chats we've had are about this sort of like scientific communities, network effects of tech hubs, so to speak. And that, that debate is happening here in the U.S. quite a bit. And you hear a lot of uh, U.S. tech and startup people talking about replicating Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley elsewhere, whether it's somewhere in Texas or Miami. And you have all these VCs tweeting about how they're going to move. And I know some of the stuff that they're into, as you point out, isn't even really uh, technology, especially, especially if it's just software, Internet consumer or exploiting network effects. It's not really uh, tech per se. But. I am curious what you think about, like, the prospects of new Silicon Valleys opening up somewhere in the U.S., especially planned ones. Oh, we're all going to move uh, to Miami. Like, how are you thinking about some of these these uh, questions, future of Silicon Valley and future of other U.S. tech hubs or elsewhere? Well, a lot of the uh, thinking about uh, what makes the current Silicon Valley work um, has always been a, a bit of a mystery. Um, you know, I used to live in San Francisco. Uh, at this point, uh, most of my friends who live in San Francisco are quite keen to leave, um, not necessarily to Austin or Miami, but people have always dreamed, uh, dreamt of, uh, you know, moving down to Los Angeles because of, you know, the housing issue in uh, San Francisco, the higher rate of property crime, the human waste on the streets. It's always been a pretty frustrating place to live in. But on the other hand, it's also where you have fantastic universities doing a lot of cutting edge research. It's where the current um, nodes uh, in this network uh, are. And maybe, you know, it has a lot to do with weather. So, you know, Miami and uh, Austin in the summer are not necessarily very pleasant places. Maybe, you know, it all comes down to having a cool and uh, pleasant sunny weather. Um, you know, I think uh, whether Miami or Austin uh, really make it uh, really depends on how quickly Silicon Valley and its current form in San Francisco can unravel. Does it matter that some of this isn't real tech, that a lot of it is not particularly, a lot of the things that people are excited about are not really science-based? I don't, uh, not necessarily. I think, you know, there is a lot of skills involved in building a really functional app and a lot of, uh, most other um, cities, uh, to say nothing of most other countries in the world, have not figured out how to build a really good intuitive app that consumers uh, really love to use. And so there is quite a lot of process knowledge. There's a lot of tacit knowledge that goes into how to create these wonderful pro products. There's, But, you know, I would also say there's a lot of marketing involved in Silicon Valley to really try to uh, have user adoption. Maybe that sort of sales culture pays off uh, a little bit more in Austin or in Miami. Um, but uh, certainly there is still quite a lot of real engineering expertise in building uh, these different uh, software businesses. What really excites you in tech at the moment? Semiconductors, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll rephrase it. What's the next big thing in semiconductors? And what are we going to be talking to you about in January of 2022? Yeah. 
Well, you know, I think there is a lot of uh, very exciting things going on now, actually, um, outside of uh, semiconductors. Um, so, you know, um, Tyler Cowen, who's a, um, a Bloomberg columnist, has uh, speculated that maybe the great stagnation uh, process he's uh, outlined as, you know, broadly technological stagnation over the last few years uh, may be ending. And so he's excited about things like the mRNA vaccine uh, being developed in record time, the space launches from uh, SpaceX. Um, you know, the, a lot of things have gone uh, very quickly in uh, the U.S. Uh, in science, uh, you know, and so I'm uh, excited about those things, too. And it's possible that the Chinese now have some form of a, a proven quantum computing uh, supremacy and not something I really understand about. Um, there's also a claim that they figured out some aspect of uh, nuclear fusion here. Um, but I encourage you to, uh, you know, look at uh, Tyler Cowen's work and then see, you know, maybe we can chat about those topics uh, in, in a follow-up episode. You know, I realize there's all kinds of, when you mentioned that, there's all kinds of follow-up questions. Like we could also talk about your view on uh, automotive tech and so forth. One quick thing before we go that I realize is kind of big, and we haven't really talked about, um, TikTok was a huge thing. Uh, I mean, it was kind of one of the tech stories of 2020. And it seemed like the first real like Chinese consumer app that took the world by storm and uh, stands toe to toe with the consumer apps like Facebook and other stuff. Is that how big of a deal is that? And what does that tell you about a sort of a Chinese consumer Internet company being able to play on the global scale in a way I don't think we've really seen before? I think TikTok is a highly innovative company that's done a lot of great things, and I'm not sure if China will be able to replicate that success uh, anytime soon. Now, if you take a look at um, the essays in particular of uh, Eugene Wei, um, you know, he's really analyzed a lot of the factors of uh, TikTok's success, uh, including by trying to grab a lot of users uh, and then figuring out the right algorithms to recommend the next videos. Certainly, there's been a, a huge amount of uh, you know, consumer internet innovation uh, there. Now, the question for me that's quite interesting with TikTok for China is that if TikTok will be the start of a trend of just basically marvelous Chinese uh, cultural creations that you know a lot of folks really want to use around the world uh, like TikTok, or whether it's uh, more of an exception that was uh, able to escape the system in a way that China has not produced very compelling cultural products over the last uh, four years, outside of a few you know art house movies, uh, outside of uh, you know the three body problem, which is still again kind of a niche product. And I'm not sure that there has been uh, many cultural Chinese successes. And I'm sort of leaning uh, towards the way that uh, TikTok was something that was able to escape a censorious and repressive system instead of, uh, you know, the start of a, a great big trend of uh, Chinese cultural uh, uh, outpouring. And to, you know, just to note that uh, Pew surveys of China over the last um, year has really starts, um, you know, spiked sharply negative in pretty much all Western countries, uh, including the U.S., when you have basically a lot of um, uh, comments from uh, senior uh, U.S. officials now designating China as a uh, strategic competitor. When you have basically a lot of Western countries closing their markets off to Chinese firms, which deprives them of uh, a lot of the richest and most discerning customers in the world, I think the prospects for generating a uh, splendid Chinese success, I would say, are, are, are not very high. But let's say let's see how the next decade plays out. We'll have to have you on again in a decade. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thanks, Dan. Dan, that was great. It's always such a it's always such a pleasure to talk to you, and that was a it's a treat. Great. Well, thank you very much again for the invitation. Tracy, all, uh, all I'll say is there's a reason why I think uh, Dan is one of the most requested guests that we have on the show. I think there's two reasons. So I, I think one is that he does come up with uh, very original ideas. So his idea about why can't China be cool is something that I don't think a lot of people necessarily think about. But when it comes to consumer tech coolness is sort of wrapped up in it, right? People want a certain yeah. smartphone or they want a certain product because it's kind of cool. And then the second thing about Dan, of course, is that he just explains everything very, very clearly. 
you know, sometimes like we wrap things up and it's like a summary of what they said, but it's like Dan is so clear. I feel like I don't have anything to add. Like it's just the way he uh, describes the different dynamics going on in different industries. It's like, I feel like I learned so much. So I don't even have that much to say. No, neither do I. I feel like what's Dan, the only thing you can kind of do is just keep asking him about different topics. Like, just tell me your thoughts on this and then this and this. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like at the end, I was like, well, we should do uh, get his take on uh, automotive tech and <laughs> we should get his take on uh, space tech and all kinds of stuff like that. Because I could have just uh, listened to him for a lot longer, but I don't have anything to add to add to Dan. Well, don't worry, Joe. We will have him on again next year and probably uh, in 10 years as well. Great. Okay. Shall we leave it there? Yep. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Definitely follow our guest, Dan Wong. He's at Dan W. Wong. Also check out his website, danwong.co. He writes a really uh, great annual essay about all the things and books he read in the last year. This one's uh, the one for 2020 is really spectacular. So check it out. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.